All right, well, good morning and good and good New Year. Uh, happy New Year. I know it's just started. We pray it's going to be a happy New Year. Um, wow, uh, first time in four years you're not going to hear me say, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel. <laughs> we are going to start a new book this morning. And uh, so I want to have you turn to the book of 1 Samuel. I got to tell you, over the last couple of weeks, people have been asking me, what book are you going to, you know, we're going to study next? And uh, when I told them 1 Samuel, they seemed about as excited as the prospect of sitting through a lengthy insurance seminar. <laughs> I think for many, the problem is that history in general, and ancient history in particular, doesn't really excite them. The mindset seems to be, what can I learn from the history of Israel that is going to have any possible relevance to my life today? Forgetting completely that Paul said in Romans 15, verse 4, that the things in the Old Testament God gave to us, that through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Or, as the NLT puts it, the Old Testament Scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. Look, I think you're going to discover that First and Second Samuel, and really, they were originally one book in the Hebrew Scriptures. But... First and Second Samuel are in many ways about as relevant to our lives as the morning news. You see, the main issue that these books deal with is the issue of leadership. Leadership. And since these things are written for our learning, the thing we learn from the history of Israel right up front is that in the absence of godly leadership, a nation will decline and suffer, whereas in the presence of godly leadership, it will prosper and be strengthened. Or, to put it another way, as leaders go, so goes a nation. Now we can see this clearly in the history of our own country as we compare the character, the faith, the godly convictions of many of our founding fathers and you see the effect they had on the formation of our nation. Then you compare them with uh, many of our leaders today, not all, but many of them, whether you talk about Republican, Democrat, Independent, I mean, across the board. When you look at the quality of leaders we're getting today, uh, and the effect they're having on our nation today, well, that truth becomes self-evident that as leaders go, so goes a nation. Now, the books of First and Second Samuel chronicle for us the lives of three of Israel's most famous leaders, Samuel, Saul, and then David. Samuel served the nation as a prophet, a priest somewhat, but also a judge. Saul as its first king, and David, of course, as its second king. Now, guys, every story is a context, and his story is no different. The background of the book of 1 Samuel is that it opens up during the period of the judges. The period of the judges lasted about 340 years. This was the period before the monarchy was established, and the nation of Israel was still under a theocratic form of government. In other words, God was their king and ruled directly over the nation. Eventually, of course, the people demanded a an earthly king like the Gentile nations around them. And so the Lord had Samuel, the last judge, anoint Saul, the first king. And the nation at that time moved from a theocracy to a monarchy. The period of the judges was one of the blackest in Israel's history, characterized by lawlessness, violence, social chaos, a period summed up by the phrase, there was no king in Israel, therefore every man did whatever seemed right in his own eyes. And whenever a nation rejects God's authority over them, that's what they did. They had rejected God's authority over them as a nation. Any nation that does that, well, that nation will begin to decline and then degrade 
and finally it will be destroyed. I don't have to tell you that our nation has entered into a period not unlike the period of the judges in Israel's history, where we have rejected God's laws in favor of doing whatever seems right in our own eyes. And guys, when we cut ourselves free from the moral absolutes that anchored us to God, we set ourselves adrift in a sea of moral relativism. And if we continue in this course, the result is going to be God's judgment and the destruction of our nation. Someone has said, and I quote America, this once great, mighty, and prosperous nation has begun to grow sick and weak. We have turned our backs on God. We have severed ourselves from our Christian roots. And once the tree has been severed from its roots, no matter how tall and strong and fruitful it once was, it will slowly begin to wither and die. However, all is not lost. There is still hope. You might be thinking, how can you say that? Things are so bad. Well, I can say it because, guys, that's exactly the message of 1 Samuel. That's exactly the message from 1 Samuel. The book of 1 Samuel teaches us that even during the blackest periods of national decline, guess what? God is still on the throne. And as someone has said, when he isn't allowed to rule, he overrules because he is the Lord of hosts and his purposes will be accomplished. Now, before we go any further, let me just, again, give you a little more background, and then we'll get into the book. As I've already said, 1 Samuel begins with Israel at a low point, a low point spiritually, morally, and of course nationally. This decline started even before Joshua had died. Remember, Joshua led them into the promised land, and initially the people were very you know, committed to God, they were real gung-ho for the Lord and so on, but over the course of 30 or so years, as they were fighting constantly to, to take the territory away from the Canaanites, they got tired of war. They didn't want to fight the battles of the Lord anymore. They wanted to settle down and enjoy the houses they didn't build and the wells they didn't dig and the vineyards they didn't plant. You know, they wanted to just kick back and take it easy. Much like many of God's people today, tired of fighting the battles of the Lord. So what did, in fact, and, and as they did that, as their hearts began to cool towards the Lord, they began to turn from the Lord and began to get into idolatry even before Joshua had died. And you can read about this in chapter 24 of the book of Joshua. And he basically challenged them. He said, look, God brought us over into this good land. as He, prom- he fulfilled his promise. But many of you have begun to worship the gods of the people that we have driven out, the gods of the Canaanites. He says, now look, if you want to serve the gods of the Canaanites, you go for it, okay? But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. So even before Joshua died, the people had already begun to decline. Now, this continued all the way through the period of the judges. The judges, guys, were leaders that were raised up by God to be leaders of the nation during the time the the nation was still a theocracy. And sadly, though, most of the judges were not very good, coupled with the priests of the Lord, who at this time were very corrupt. Well, as I said earlier, in the absence of godly leadership, the people began to practice idolatry, gave themselves over to all kinds of immorality, And the result was lawlessness, violence, anarchy, and a total devaluing of human life. When you read the book of Judges, it's shocking how cheap life was back then. It seemed like life was meaningless, worthless. That always happens when a people turns its back on God and His Word. It's the God who created us that gives us the sanctity of life in our hearts. And we turn away from God and begin to do whatever we feel is right in our own eyes 
well, invariably, we begin to step on each other, and the weakest in society are the first to go. And that's how the book of 1 Samuel opens up during this very black period in Israel's history. Yet, as the book of Samuel does begin, we are introduced right away to a woman named Hannah. Her name means grace. And it seems that even in the blackest periods of human history, that God's grace is still present. And we're going to see that it was out of Hannah's pain and her corresponding prayer that God birthed a new chapter in the nation's history by giving her a son who would go on to be a prophet, a priest, and a judge. I like what Warren Worsby said. Let me quote it to you. He said, as he often did in Israel's history, God began to solve the problem by sending a baby. Babies are God's announcement that he knows the need, cares about his people, and is at work on their behalf. The arrival of a baby ushers in new life and a new beginning. Babies are signposts to the future, and their conception and birth is a miracle that only God can do. To make the event seem even greater, God sometimes selects barren women to be the mothers, as when he sent Isaac to Sarah, Jacob and Esau to Rebekah, and Joseph to Rachel, end quote. And might I add, many years later, he would send another son to a barren woman named Elizabeth, who gave birth in her old age to a son she named John, who became the forerunner of Messiah, John the Baptist. So this is something that God seems to delight in doing. And the story of Hannah giving birth to Samuel teaches us many lessons, but one of them is that one person can make a difference. One person can make a difference if that person is broken, surrender to God, and listen, praise, praise. The name Samuel means asked of God. <laughs> so Samuel's very life became a testimony to the power of prayer. What's your name? Asked of God. Oh, really? See, his very name was a testimony to the fact that God answers prayer. And anyone who knows when Samuel was born knows that God answered that prayer when all hope seemed to be gone for the nation. At one of its low points, blackest periods in its history, suddenly God stepped in and did a work. A work that turned the nation around for many centuries. Now, I've outlined the first part of this book, the part that deals with Hannah, simply this way. Hannah's suffering, chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. Hannah's supplication, chapter 1, verses 8 to 18. Hannah's son, chapter 1, verses 19 to 28, and then Hannah's song, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Let's just look at the first one today, Hannah's suffering. We read in verse 1, Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim in the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jerome, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephraimite. Now, right off the bat, we're introduced to a man named Elkanah, or Elkanah. Uh, we are told that he lived in the mountainous area uh, of Ephraim, in the town of Ramathaim Zophim, another way of saying Ramah. See that in verse 19. And it was located about 15 miles north of Jerusalem. We are told his father's name, his grandfather's name, his great-grandfather's name, and his great-great-grandfather's names. You say, is that important? No, that's the whole point. Okay, these guys were very unimportant. In fact, uh, they were not well-known or important at all. They were relatively insignificant and obscure people. Now, that shouldn't throw us. That's God's MO, okay? God delights in using the weak, the foolish, the base, and the nobodies to do some of his best work through. 
The point is that we don't have to be somebody for God to use us, right? I mean, during this very dark period in Israel's history when God wanted to do a, a very important work in turning the nation around, he didn't go to the well-known or the best educated. He went to a simple family that nobody knew, but a family that loved the Lord. That's the key, okay? The eyes of the Lord go to and fro about the face of the whole world looking for anyone to use as long as their hearts are right with him and loyal to him, see? And so Elkanah and, of course, Hannah, they had good hearts for the Lord. And we read in verse 2, And Elkanah had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other was Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. That was the problem. Now, Hannah, as I said, her name means grace. Penina, her name means rubies. But as somebody has pointed out, she was no gem. Okay? <laughs> as we're going to see, she was cruel and vindictive. The fact that Hannah's name appears first indicates she was Elkanah's first wife. But because she was barren, he decided to take a second wife in that culture, which would not have been a sin because not having children was a great tragedy. They were farmers, ranchers, okay? The more kids you had, the more ranch hands you had, okay? Having big families back then was an asset. Today, a lot of people think it's a liability. A lot of young couples are opting not even to have children. But back then, to have children, boy, they were a blessing in a lot of ways. And one of the ways was they were able to help in the family farming business, all right? So Elkanah married Hannah, loved her deeply, but Hannah was barren. So he winds up marrying another gal named Penina, who did bear him children. Something, listen, that Penina never missed an opportunity to rub Hannah's face in. Now, there are those that read that Elkanah had two wives. And they read how there are others in the, in the Old Testament had multiple wives. And they take it to mean that bigamy and polygamy are biblical and therefore good. However, there are things that God permitted under the Old Testament economy that were never a part of his original intention for marriage. One would be polygamy, the other would be divorce, except in the case of sexual infidelity. In the Bible, polygamy is never put in a favorable light. I mean, it was permitted, but it was never a good thing. Because it always, almost always, led to strife, conflict, and the favoritism of one wife over the other or the others. One of the most tragic examples of this, and we're going to study this in Genesis when we get there, is how Jacob married two gals, sisters, Leah and Rachel. Now, we loved Rachel. That's where his heart was at. But her father, Laban, tricked him into also marrying Leah. Now, poor Leah loved jo uh, Jacob, but he didn't really love her. And so she tried to buy his love by giving him children. And you remember the story, how every time she had a child, she would name the child a name that would say, well, now he'll love me, okay? Maybe now he'll love me. So it's very tragic, right? And it wasn't until Rachel died that I think Jacob's heart was finally given over to Leah because God never intended for us to have multiple partners in marriage. We're to give our heart to one person for life. Now, verse 3 says, This man, Elkanah, went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Eli was a priest. Uh, his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were also priests, and we're told that they were there in Shiloh as well at that time. Now, at this point in Israel's history, the tabernacle was in Shiloh and not on Mount Moriah. Uh, Joshua 18, verse 1, tells us that they put it in Shiloh. At this time, they didn't even control what we call the Temple Mount today. That was a Jebusite town and it wasn't conquered until the time of David 
And David eventually bought the threshing floor of Aruna, as we're going to see eventually, uh, and there put the tabernacle, and eventually Solomon built the temple. But th at this time, the, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was in Shiloh, and apparently they had built some kind of a structure around it. It wasn't the temple, but it was the tabernacle, which was a tent. But then they built some kind of a building around it because Eli lived in the tabernacle area, and so did little Samuel when he was born, grew up there. So something else was going on there. But um, we are told, though, that Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, the priests of the Lord were also there in Shiloh at this time. Now, as we're going to see, Eli was not a very spiritual priest. And his sons, well, they were just flat-out evil characters. We'll see this more later. But why did Samuel feel the need to mention these two evil priests were ministering in Shiloh at this time? Why did he feel the need to mention their names? Well, I think the Holy Spirit led him to mention their names to first of all tell us that just because a person is in full-time ministry doesn't mean they're really servants of God or that they even know God. There's a lot of people who are in full-time ministry who are servants of themselves. Many of them don't even belong to God. But there are many churches today that are being pastored by wicked men and women who teach every sort of false doctrine and heresy, who deny the inspiration of the Word of God, who twist it to their own destruction, as the New Testament talks about. They call themselves ministers of God, but Paul nailed it when he said in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 to 15, they're really false apostles. There's a lot of people going around back then claiming to be apostles of the Lord. But Paul said they're false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ, and no wonder. For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light to deceive. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. So Paul is telling us that in the church of Jesus Christ, there are many false pastors and preachers and so on who present themselves as men of God, who many believe them to be men of God, but are really the servants of Satan and not servants of the Lord. However, I believe primarily... These two wicked priests were mentioned to show how godly Elkanah was. Don't miss this, all right? I think it's important. that Even though the priests were wicked, he still went to Shiloh to offer sacrifices to the Lord because, listen, their wickedness was not going to stop him from worshiping God. Now, I bring this up because I have seen over the years Many who have stopped going to church altogether because some TV pastor or preacher was exposed as a fraud, a phony, somebody who had been embezzling church funds, uh, somebody that came out, he was living a very lavish lifestyle, even having multiple affairs and so on. And so they see this scandal break, and in their minds it says, see, that's why I don't, I'm not going to church anymore. Too many phonies and hypocrites. Well, if that's the charge... Uh, against the church in these last days that it's full of a lot of phonies and hypocrites guilty as charged don't go to one of those churches okay don't make one of those guys your pastor but the idea is there are many good men of god in pulpits who are faithfully declaring god's word just because there are wicked people that claim to represent god what has that got to do with you worshiping the lord yourself you know in some ways i think it's just an excuse well i don't want to go to church why don't you go to church? Not because I'm lazy. 
Not because I'm not spiritual enough to get anything out of it, because uh, there's too many phonies and, and hypocrites. Well, you know what? Elkanah was of the, of the mindset that, look, these two characters are wicked. I'll let God deal with them. I'm just going to worship the Lord, though. They're not going to stop me from worshiping my God. Verse 4, we read, And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she, Hannah, wept and did not eat. Miserable time of the year for Hannah. Our hearts can't help but go out to her. Since Elkanah was able to have children by Penina, Hannah knew I'm the problem. Okay, I'm the infertile one. Now, did Hannah know at that time that the Lord had closed her womb? We're not told. We know that Samuel, who was a prophet, who was writing this, a portion of the book, uh, he tells that the, Lord, that the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Did Hannah know that? I don't know. Uh, did Elkanah know that? We're not told. Why would the Lord do that? She seems like a good gal. Why, why would the Lord do that? Why would the Lord close her womb? Well, guys, there's only two reasons I can think of that God would have done something like this to her. It, and, and anyone, any woman the Lord closes their womb, there's only two reasons I can think of why the Lord would do that, since having children is the norm. Um, one would be a judgment for sin. The second would be a purpose he had in mind. So a judgment for some sin in their life. Children are a blessing from the Lord. If you're in sin, God's not going to bless you with children. He's going to withhold that maybe uh, until you get your life right. And then possibly for a purpose he had in mind. I think in Hannah's case, guys, both were true. I think in Hannah's case, both were true. I think that part of the reason that God continued to keep Hannah from getting pregnant was because, listen to me, wanting a child had become an idol in her life. An idol in her life. And even though the Bible tells us in Psalm 127, verse 3, that children are a blessing from the Lord, and to desire children is, of course, a good thing and not a sin, Anything or anyone that becomes a consuming passion in our lives other than God himself becomes an idol in our hearts. And guess what? God will not facilitate idolatry in our hearts by giving us what we desire that badly, even if it's a good thing like children. He'll withhold it until we get our heart right, basically. Okay? He'll withhold a blessing. Uh, if it's going to be a stumbling block, if it's going to be an object of worship, he'll withhold it. And I'm precluding medical, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, not every woman who can't have kids is under some judgment from God. I mean, I'm just saying, though, if there's no medical uh, issue involved that would prohibit her from having kids, and if God is truly closing her womb, well, he'll do that even if the thing he wants to give, which is good, children, if that desire to become an object of worship, he will withhold the blessing until she gets her heart right with the Lord. I also think that there was a measure of pride uh, in Hannah's desire to have a child. I mean, she wanted to prove her worth as a woman. Because in that culture, to be barren meant that you were at very least defective. And at worst, you were being cursed by God. Either way, it brought a lot of public humiliation and shame. I think in some ways, Penina, although she was very cruel, was only verbalizing what a lot of other women were saying in their hearts. They were snickering that Hannah must not be such a great woman of God 
because God had closed her womb. That's a judgment of God. Something's wrong with this gal. And let's be honest, I think part of the reason Hannah wanted a child was so she could shut Penina up. <laughs> but I think all of these things played a role in why God didn't allow Hannah to get pregnant. Listen to me. They played a role, but they were not the main reason. They played a role, but they were not the main reason. You see, God needed a man to lead the nation out of this period of national decline into spiritual revival. And at that time, he found no man who had a heart fully given over to him, a man that he could use in this very important work of bringing the nation back to him. A similar thing happened during the time of Ezekiel, who was also a prophet. Uh, during Ezekiel's time, the nation once again had fallen into a, a time of severe national decline, so much so that God was about to judge the nation for their sin and immorality. He didn't want to, though. He wanted somebody who would stand in the gap and intercede on behalf of the land, but because nobody was of a spiritual mindset enough to, to do that, he said, I've got no choice but to judge. In fact, I'll read it to you. Ezekiel 22, verses 30 and 31. God said, so I sought for a man among them who would make a wall. In other words, a wall between me and the people that I would not have to judge them. Who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath and have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. God is saying, look, the nation was in such a desperate place spiritually and morally that I had no choice but to bring judgment if nobody was willing to pray and intercede. I looked for somebody, because God's default setting, if I can put it that way, is to show mercy. He doesn't want to judge. He wants to forgive. And he was looking for somebody who would pray who would stand in the gap and be a wall to stand between God and the land so that he wouldn't judge it, but he found nobody. Why was there no one at this time? What happens to a nation where nobody seriously is praying about escaping God's judgment? Well, obviously you're a nation that thinks that you're in good with God. You don't see judgments coming. We talk to people today in our culture about coming judgment. What do they do? They snicker, they laugh at us, and they mock us. Because if they even believe in God, and a lot of people don't even believe in God today, they believe that he's a loving God who would never do something like that. I mean, we're the Christian nation. Why would God judge us? Why? That's exactly the mindset God's people had during the days of Jeremiah when he was preaching judgments coming. And the false prophets were going, don't listen to Jeremiah. He's a nut job. You're God's people. The temple of God is right here. God's not going to judge you. He loves you. Well... Jeremiah was telling the truth. The false prophets were telling the people what they wanted to hear. And we're living at a time with a lot of guys and gals in pulpits who are telling people what they want to hear. They don't preach judgment. They don't really teach the word of God. They, they're man-pleasers. They tickle ears. It's like Paul said what happened in the last days. So nobody in Israel was really praying because they felt they were right with God. And therefore God's judgment fell. God was looking for a man. If the book of 1 Samuel opens up, he was looking for someone. A man with the kind of heart that was totally given over to him that he could use to bring spiritual revival to the nation. He found no one at that time. And guys, I have to wonder how often this has been repeated down through history. Where God is seeking a man who will fully dedicate his life to the purposes and plans of God. Someone who could be used by God 
but God finds nobody, which seems to be the case as the book of 1 Samuel opens up. And since God couldn't find a man already alive, guess what? He decided to grow one up from scratch. Starting with a baby who would live and grow there in the tabernacle area, one that would serve God from the time he was first able to walk and talk, an instrument that God would prepare from childhood to adulthood and then use to bring the nation to revival. But before God could raise up a child, he first had to have a woman who would be willing to surrender her child to God to be used by him all the days of his life. I mean, I don't know many moms that would want to do that. Have a child and then just give it to the church to be raised in the church. Hannah was a good mom. She had wanted a child all her life. But God needed a woman who would be willing to surrender a child to him that he might grow that child up from the time it was just a baby to adulthood to use for a very special mission. Hannah became that woman. A woman God withheld a child from until she was broken of self, all selfish desires, all pride in wanting to have a child, and then was willing to give that child to God. Listen, the most precious thing that she had. Guys, that's worship. That's worship. Many centuries later, another woman, we know her as Mary of Bethany, gave up the most precious thing that she had, an alabaster flask of very costly, fragrant perfume that she had no doubt been saving as a dowry. And by breaking it open, pouring it out on Jesus, preparing his body for burial, she was giving the most, it was, years of, uh, was worth a year's wage. But by pouring it all out on Jesus, preparing him for burial, she was pretty much giving up any hope of ever getting married. A, do, a dowerless girl, it's hard to say, in that culture, was probably not going to get married. But in Mary's mind, that was okay because she's already married to Jesus. And she loved him, and she devoted her life to him. Uh, Hannah was the same kind of gal. As we are able to spend some time with Hannah over the next week or so, we're going to see just how godly a woman she was. And I believe that much of her godliness and the depth of her relationship with God was a result, listen, of the suffering that she went through, which drove her to God constantly. There's something about suffering, adversity, that keeps us on our knees and keeps us drawing closer and closer to God. And the closer we get to God, the more broken we are of self, and the more God is able to then use us for his glory, for whatever he decides to use us for. Now, we have to stop there. We'll pick it up next week, God willing. Let me just say this once again. Paul said the things in the Old Testament were written for our learning. What can we learn then? from the lesson today. Well, things that Paul said will teach us patience and uh, give us hope. How does that work? Well, we look at the way God worked in these people's lives. They're, they're just like us, okay, minus the iPods and iPhones and things like that, you know. They're just like us, okay? Maybe some of the word clothes, but, you know. Uh, they're people, okay? At our core, we're the same. And how God worked in their lives, in the lives of men like Abraham, and Moses, and Daniel, David, women like Hannah, and, and, and Sarah, and others. 
As we study their lives, we learn how God works in the lives of his people. And that gives us comfort in the sense that, look, for many years God didn't speak to Moses until he said, now it's time to go and deliver my people from Egypt. Moses had thought his life and ministry were over for God. No, God didn't feel that way. We see this all throughout the scriptures, that in somebody has said God is never in a hurry. When it comes to the greatest work he wants to do, he always takes his time. Because the preparation of the instrument takes the most time. When God says, okay, you're ready, and God begins to move, things happen quick. Look at Daniel. Uh, Ten years in Potiphar's house as a slave. Another three years in prison, unjustly accused. And in one day, he went from prison to prime minister. Hey, God takes a lot of time preparing us because, you know, the greater the work, the longer the preparation. But when it's time, things go quick. And I think, guys, things are about to move quick. God has been preparing us for a long time. And I think that God's preparation is about to intersect with the time has come. In the fullness of time, Calvary Oak Grove was ready for the work God had prepared it for. That work is coming. But if we apply these lessons to our lives, let me just give you these quick and we'll close. If you've been praying to God about something, okay, maybe you're asking him for something, uh, and your prayers are going unanswered, ask yourself if what you're asking for has become an idol in some way in your heart. Now, everyone would say, oh, not me. I've heard this all the time, okay? Oh, no. Look, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. God says, only I know it, okay? Take some time in God's presence and ask him, with sincerity. Lord, I've been asking for this thing, and I don't know, Lord, is it something that I've been asking for a husband? Okay, or I've been asking for a wife. Why aren't you answering? God might be saying, because it's become an obsession. You're putting that desire before me. Now, my word says, he who desires a wife desires a good thing. It's a blessing to have a, a wife or a husband. But if you're going to put them before me, I'm not going to bless you with a spouse that's going to become an idol. There are things that we ask for, we don't even realize we're not asking from the right heart. And God is withholding it until we get our heart right, okay? Or number two, maybe God is withholding his answer to your prayer until you repent of some sin you're involved in. You say, well, gee, I mean, is there some secret sin I don't even know about that God's holding against me? No, believe me. Uh, If God is... If God is holding his blessing from your life because of sin, guess what? You know what that sin is, all right? It's not some secret sin that you buried that, you know, years ago that you committed one day and it's hidden somewhere and you don't know what it is. No, look, if God is withholding his blessing, believe me, you know the sin you're involved in. And get it right with God. God wants to bless. God wants to use you. But guess what? He's not going to give you a pass when it comes to sin. And look, it doesn't have to be a giant sin like maybe you're having an affair. If you are, get that right today. It could be littler things. Remember what it says in the book of um, Song of Solomon? It's the little foxes that spoil the vines. It's often the little sins that we don't, that fly under our moral radar. The covetousness, the gossip, the slander, the selfishness. Because we don't murder anybody and haven't robbed a bank lately and, and, and so on, we think that God gives us a pass and all the other stuff. No, 
doesn't work like that. So, you know, take inventory of your life. Number three, maybe he's just waiting for the perfect moment to answer your request. He fully, inten- he fully intended to answer Hannah's request. He had to do some work in her life. But, he, you know, for everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of a virgin. Je- Jesus said in numerous places, he said, my time has not come. God has got a time. And before that time comes, he's working, okay? He's working, he's preparing, as we said. But don't lose heart, okay? Don't lose heart. That's the thing. You know, we pray a little bit, and then we don't get the answer, and we want to give up. Jesus said in Luke 18, verse 1, that men ought always, and women, ought always to pray and not lose heart. Why? Because we're fighting a battle, guys. We don't understand. I mean, we know it in our heads, but we don't really practice it in our lives. That we are in a war. An answered prayer, if it's good prayers that are going to glorify God, the devil doesn't want us to get those answers. And so he holds them up. Remember Daniel uh, who set himself to praying and fasting? Three weeks went by. Finally, an angel comes to him one day and says, Daniel, wow, uh, from the very first day you set yourself to praying and fasting, God dispatched me with your answer. But you should have seen the battle. I mean, I was withheld by this demon and that demon, and finally Michael came and we, we broke through the enemy lines, and here I am with your answer. You don't know if the day you start praying, Star Wars is unleashed in the heavenlies, you know, <laughs> lightsabers flashing, sparks flying. You don't know what's going on behind the scenes. If Daniel had lost heart, maybe two and a half weeks into his prayer time, would his answer have gotten to him? I don't know. I don't think so. You're praying for your spouse to be saved. You're praying for your kids to be saved. You're praying for some other thing that's going to glorify God. And God hasn't answered. You keep praying because there's a warfare going on out there. There's a battle that's taking place. And we need to keep praying and keep trusting God. The answer will come through. God will be victorious. So don't give up. He's got a perfect time. Look, remember that Hannah had to be broken before she could be blessed. And that, guys, is the same with all of us. Hannah had to be broken before she could be blessed. Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the night is out. Not me, Lord. I'm Rocky Johnson. You know? Peter, son of John. Okay, Peter, Rock, son of John Johnson. I'm Rocky Johnson. I will never let you down, Lord. I'll, I'll never let you down. Okay? Before the night was out, Peter denied the Lord three times, as the Lord had predicted. Peter went out and wept bitterly. Those three days must have been really difficult for Peter. He probably felt that's it for me. I'll never, I mean, I can't even face him, let alone ever serve him again. The first person that Jesus sought after his resurrection was Peter. He restored him. You see, Jesus had to break Peter of self-confidence before he could use Peter. Peter's greatest days of ministry were yet future. But not until God broke him. Look, God's breaking in our lives is never easy, but it's always, always a prelude to some work he wants to do in and through us. So Hannah had to be broken before she could be blessed. The same is true in all of our lives. We'll leave it there. And may God give us grace to continue to study this incredible book and mine from it all the lessons that he has put here for us to learn. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time in your word. 
Father, we understand how that you work in our lives as you did in Hannah's life. You intended to give her her request, but not until she got her heart right with you. And Father, there are people here today who have been asking you for good things, and you haven't answered up to this point. But Lord, we pray you give them strength, perseverance, that they don't lose heart, that they keep seeking, asking, knocking until the answer comes. And maybe it's no, that's okay, because it means you have something better for us. But Lord, give us grace to be people who are broken, surrendered, and who pray. And give us grace never to think that because we're just nobody, you can't use us in any kind of a meaningful way. Your word tells us that not many mighty, noble, intelligent are called. But you choose the weak, the foolish, the base, and the nobodies to do your best work through. Well, here we are. <laughs> Lord, we're reporting for duty. And we just ask you to use us in this coming, in this new year. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.